that's the thing that I always find really interesting is navigating, uh, navigating a, a solution space that is not clear. Uh, I, I, I just love going and branching out and thinking about all the, all the different connections between different pieces of technology. And um, that, that's something that, that, that's been, it's sometimes ineffable. It's, it's difficult to describe that there's, there's going to be these connections between different pieces of technology that you do not see today. And when you have an ecosystem that's accessible, an ecosystem that democratizes the, the effort, and this, these humane concepts, like, the, like this concept of high fidelity, that the more effort that you put into the system, the results should be better for you. Um, if that becomes a requirement of every piece of technology that you're working on, then the results are fundamentally going to be more humane for people. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Data Binge podcast, where we have some really fundamental conversations around how to accelerate human productivity and impact through emerging technologies, from the business capabilities that are opening up via cloud computing all the way to the implications of building more diverse AI. Tons of really cool topics lately as well. I just finished up a recent mini-series, if you will, on Industry 4.0 and all the things that get wrapped into the modern state of manufacturing and merging this evolving ecosystem of humans and devices in the workplace. So that was really awesome. You'll catch all four parts of that deep dive in episodes 17, 19, 24, and 26. So definitely check those out if you care about those particular topics. And I should be releasing a nice collage of those conversations into an episode here shortly in the near future. I'm really happy to be introducing this episode to you today. I've gotten the privilege of beginning to understand and unravel this do-it-yourself community for type 1 diabetes treatment and therapy where the first opportunity to educate myself with what's going on here was a, a conversation with Ali Mazahari. He's the chief architect at the Irvine Microsoft Technology Center. And he shared his family's story with combating against his son Sam's condition, type 1 diabetes condition, which was a life-changing event for his family just a, a handful of years ago, where both Ali and his family have risen to the occasion of dealing with that adversity and challenge. And it's completely changed Ali in how he looks at the world and views the world. That was a really fascinating episode, number 23, if you're interested in listening. And Ali and his family's story is what really inspired today's guest and conversation. Today, I'd like to introduce you to Ben West. Ali introduced me to Ben when I was asking about other thought leaders in the, in the do-it-yourself community that we could all learn from. Ben was diagnosed with diabetes type 1 at 21 years of age. And if you or any of your friends or loved ones have a similar diagnosis, you are definitely going to learn so much from Ben today because I certainly did. Ben is currently a staff product engineer at Dexcom, global leader in diabetes care transformation and management. They're located down in San Diego, where they design and manufacture continuous glucose monitoring devices, CGM. And you'll hear a lot more about that technology in today's talk if you don't know what it really is. He spends his time today at Dexcom helping to prioritize where investments in innovation are spent and which ideas to accelerate into the concept funnel that will yield the most impact for the organization 
and its customers. So Ben is really mission-driven, and you'll see that throughout the talk. He's an incredibly sharp guy, and you'll enjoy how he approaches some of these super tough problems. Ben spent the last five years as part of his personal mission to reduce the burden of living with diabetes type 1, reverse engineering the open-loop system of the insulin pump, and has done a tremendous amount of work there, and is also a co-founder of the Night Scout Project, an open-source cloud-based system that provides the availability of CGM information to web browsers, smartphones, and other devices to help people with the disease manage the condition in real time and even predictively based on their biometrics, activity, and glucose levels. So it's monumental for folks that are managing uh, this condition. Ben has also spent some time doing engineering work with Tidepool.org, which is a software that is helping to take the do-it-yourself capability of addressing both the data on the insulin pump and the data on the CGM, merging this data into a closed-loop system and providing prescriptive suggestions on ongoing therapy. Again, really getting in front of uh, some of this therapy. Currently, the software is up for approval with the FDA and is looking to be democratized and provided within the App Store uh, or app stores for some easy consumption, hopefully in the future. Ben also spent some time as a cloud networking engineer at Cisco. You'll see some of his experience in these capacities play out in the talk, and it doesn't stop there. Ben has a, a wealth of experience in software engineering and networking all up, and is a very reliable resource to follow and listen to as he discusses some big themes around the value of high-fidelity solutions in healthcare. You'll find throughout the episode, we really focus on the journey, the community, and the people that have been working really hard on all these tough challenges. We talk about the concept of high-fidelity healthcare, what it is, and why it's so incredibly important to how we approach curing not only human diseases, but big challenges to humankind in general. We talk about the importance of the ratio of effort and the output of some external good from that particular effort. Again, going back into this high fidelity arena of solving problems. We also talk about the development of new technologies and some basic philosophies around, you can call it capitalistic versus open cultures of development and innovation as they pertain to solving these important problems. There's a lot here. A very special episode. Really enjoyed having Ben on and getting to know him a little bit. And I hope all of you guys really enjoy. If you haven't done so already, please leave a comment about the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps me better circulate the content so I can better serve you through great guests and conversations. The episode is also available on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, and Google Podcasts. Now I bring you Ben West. Hey, Ben, how you doing? Very good. How are you, Derek? I'm doing very well. Thanks for uh, hopping on the, the chat today. Really appreciate, I know folks listening can't see this, but I really appreciate you uh, setting up a, a nice conference room because I can see the beautiful blue San Diego skyline behind you with palm trees and the whole, the whole shebang. Yeah, sometimes you have, to, you have to grab a nice room for stuff like this. You know? <laughs> yeah, very, very cool. I love it. So we, we actually haven't met before. And I did a podcast episode with Ali Mazahari at Microsoft a couple, couple episodes ago, maybe a couple weeks, almost a month ago. And he, before and after, couldn't stop saying, 
more nice things about you and, and the contributions that you've made in his family's life. Um, and the episode essentially was about open source uh, ecosystems and what him and his family, their journey, what they've been going through with his son Sam's uh, diagnosis of uh, diabetes type 1. And we talked about that a little bit. And then he mentioned all these different characters that have made these massive contributions to this this movement that's going on in, in the industry. And I reached out and in the first half an hour of me and you talking, you literally souped the nuts, walked me through exactly all the different uh, identities of the different um, uh, components and applications that have to talk to each other and the, the details of the disease and all these different things. And you, of course, have your own journey as well. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. This is really exciting for me. Yeah, no problem. I'm I'm glad you got to speak to um, Ali. Uh, the Mazaharis are are a wonderful family, very sweet, um, and they um, they they meant a lot to me. Also, when I was when I was building this stuff, having their feedback was was really critical, and they've been extremely supportive of me um, uh, at at a time in my life when I need I really needed the support. So I, I really appreciate that from them as well. I love that. I love that. So, uh, so Ben, you know, tell us about, you know, what you do today. And I'm sure as we get deeper into the conversation, we'll learn about these technologies and, and this disease that I've been talking about, but what are you do? What do you do today? And what's, what's your wheelhouse? Uh, so today I, I've, I've pivoted a bit from what I, from what I used to do, from what got me here. Um, today I work at Dexcom uh, and Dexcom makes CGM systems, and I I help uh, continuous glucose ma- monitoring system. Yeah, CGM stands for continuous glucose monitoring, and um, it's it's a device that has really been um, breakthrough um, innovation and in, in the technology of treating um, diabetes. And um, what I do here is I. I synthesize all the from all the different possible things that could be done. I I try to help prioritize what is it that would be most worthwhile to do. Everyone, every organization has a limited amount of time and energy and money, limited resources, right? And um, so what I try to do is is help outline uh, of all the things that we could do. Where is where is our energy really best spent? I've always been really uh, mission oriented, uh, mission oriented in the sense that I, I want to um, produce the most amount of good with my energy and my talents that, that is possible and um, with the least amount of effort and expense and costs. So I've, 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 I'm kind of the, um, the, the prototypical lazy programmer where the joke with lazy programmers is they'll spend you know, in my case, I spent five years uh, reverse engineering uh, the insulin pump so that I wouldn't have to press the buttons as much, right? And it's kind of, it seems kind of silly. Why would you? Why would you do something like that? And it turns out, in in in, in, in the diabetes uh, scenario, that's extremely beneficial to have done that because now we have software that can instead of me looking at different devices and making decisions on my own every five minutes, that's now, that's now an automatic process. The software and the technology is now able to accomplish this process of integrating all the information, 
looking at the considering the best options for therapy over the next uh, three to four hours, and then making a new um, dosing decision every five minutes. So that that turns out to have been. I, I'm sure you talked to um, uh, Ali about that, and that that turns out to make a world of difference, especially in type one diabetes. So I help I help establish. Here we call it pre-phase zero, which is just uh, we have a whole process. It's a big company, and so we have a whole process for how does how do ideas make it into the workflow? How do how does the workflow go from uh, conceptualization into development and then into commercialization? And so I, I my wheelhouse is really the the very beginning of all of that. What are the before we even agree on what concepts the organization pursue as a concept, really, what are the ideas that we should be funneling into that into that concept stage? And it seems like the just for the the CGM market, uh, pretty sizable market, uh, just from the American Diabetic Association, uh, Diabetes Association, they were saying about 1.25 million adults have diabetes type one in the U.S. That's right in the U.S. And that's, I think, as of 2015, so those numbers have probably grown. And about 20 to 30% of those people most likely have CGM devices. Um, and it seems like the, the technology has grown massively over the last three or four years. And I didn't just talk into Ali, and if I didn't mention what he does, he's a chief architect at the Microsoft Technology Center in, in Irvine, California. And um, there had been a lot of different collaborations with trying to get the technology to a point where um, folks wearing the technology could understand what was going on with their glucose levels so that they could then monitor it and then predictively take some action to help attenuate what, whatever was going on with their bodies. Can you tell us a little bit about your contribution to that and, and what that looked like from your, from your lens because you've done so much work there? Yeah, uh, uh, so I, I was diagnosed with type one, um, diabetes, uh, right. in at, towards the end of my college career. So I was, uh, 21 and, um, diagnosed. And at the time I was a double major in, um, music and computer science. And I was looking at what, what would I like to do with my life as, you know, as college graduates kind of, kind of all go through. And I, I decided, you know, uh, I, I had this realization that I was using this glucose meter um, and I was considering transitioning to what's called an insulin pump. And I realized, um, you know, it seems like these guys have it under control. I was told uh, I was told at the clinic there was a salesperson from the insulin pump company that attended my clinic sessions with me. And they told me that, listen, in five years, all of this is going to go away. Right now, you're going to have to prick your finger and get a drop of blood out of your finger. And you're going to have to do this uh, four or five, six, maybe 10 times per day. And then you're going to have to use that information to decide how much insulin you need to take. And here's a syringe to draw up the insulin and take, take that insulin. And it was not long before I discovered some of the pitfalls there. And that is that when you're taking 
your sensor readings for through a glucose meter manually, maybe four or six, maybe 10, 12 times per day. There's all those other times that you have basically very little idea of what's going on. And and when you take insulin, therefore, uh, based off of that information, it's and you're taking insulin manually, it's very easy just to get too much insulin. And the struggle with insulin is that it takes around six hours before it to have its full effect. So you take it, and then about 40 minutes later, it starts having an effect. And then it continues to have a fairly large effect for th- about three hours, but then it has a weaker effect for another three hours beyond that. And when you're only getting feedback on the performance of that insulin dosing four to five to six times per day, um, it's very easy to take too much insulin or not enough insulin. So I recently saw the statistic that uh, said one out of two insulin doses are inappropriate amounts of insulin doses. Um, so the reason we're taking insulin is to control uh, the glucose levels, and you want the glucose levels to be in a pretty tight range. Turns out, uh, for most for most healthy people, the healthy normal glucose range is somewhere between 70 and 120. And it's very easy with diabetes. You, without any insulin, you're looking at glucose ranges that go up to 300, up to 400, up to 500. I've even heard as high as 950 and 1,000. And at those levels, your body starts um, your body starts reacting um, pretty violently, and and you start throwing up a lot. The organs um, organs start failing. It's a pretty nasty, um, pretty nasty, horrible experience. Now the trouble is that when you take too much insulin, it will lower the glu- glucose from a high of four hundred or a high of five hundred down to the target range of one one hundred or one twenty or so. But if you take too much insulin, that's that's a that's a pretty large amount, right? So to go from 500 to 100, that's there's 400 points of of delta in there. But there's not if you take too much, there's not another 400 points of delta between 100 and zero, right? So so really that that narrow landing strip that you want to uh, obtain is so narrow and it's so easy to go below that below 70 into the 30s and 40s and 20s. And at that, at that point, you're again at risk of uh, coma, death, seizure, because your body needs a certain amount of glucose uh, in the blood supply to sustain itself. So, um, so as, 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 as people affected with diabetes know, we often say that going, going high, hyperglycemic, going into the high values of glucose in the blood will kill you kind of slowly. It'll kill you over many days to weeks to months perhaps um, but getting too much insulin and going into what we call the hypo hypoglycemic or low glucose ranges that will kill you in the next six to eight hours and your body is literally sending you signals saying my your body is dying there's a the doctors call it the doom and gloom feeling and it's not hyper, it's not hyperbolized that is it actually feels uh, like doom and gloom, your body is sending you these signals that says your body is dying. Um, it sounds so like that's also very unpleasant. Diabetes. It sounds like it's the seventh leading cause of death in the United States, which is this is all coming together in terms of why this would be the case. I didn't. I didn't know that. Actually, that's very interesting. Um, I, I didn't know that. 
um, so I so I got involved um, in, in college. They started putting me on these devices. They said, you know, you, you seem like a fairly smart guy. We're going to hook you up with this thing called an insulin pump. And at the time, I was really, really excited about going on, starting with the insulin pump therapy, because I realized that this is biomimicry in, in action with high tech, right? What, what I had been doing was taking um, insulin injections four to six times per day. Well, it turns out your body naturally f- does this fine balancing act by producing small micro doses of insulin all day long. And that's exactly what the insulin pump was designed to do. The insulin pump was designed to mimic your natural biological function by giving you small amounts of insulin all the time. And so that's the, that's the mode of operation that's most interesting about the insulin pump. We call that the basal, the basal dose. And the basal dose sets down a base rate that operates on a 24-hour schedule and according to that 24-hour schedule, it gives you slightly more insulin uh, in the morning. Then, uh, and as you go exercise, it'll give you. You tell it that I'm going to go exercise at this time. It'll give you slightly less insulin. And then at meal times, you know you're going to have a meal, so it'll give you slightly more insulin. And then at nighttime, maybe you're going to go to sleep and you want to be more cautious, so it'll give you slightly less insulin overnight. Now that's a static schedule that you program into the pump. And it will do that same 24-hour schedule every single day of the week, even if you don't press any buttons. And that's called the the basal mode of operation, basal rate. So that's the main thing that it does. Now, to replicate what happens with uh, the syringes, at mealtime, you're going to eat a bunch of carbohydrates, which your body turns into glucose, which naturally raises your, your, your glucose levels. And so in order to compensate for that, we have to do an extra thing that we call the bolus. So the bolus dose is the amount of insulin that you would take to, uh, if you're experiencing a high glucose, it's the amount to correct that high glucose back down to your desired range. Or in the case where you know that you're going to have carbohydrates on board that will raise your glucose, it's the amount of insulin to prevent, to control that rise from becoming uncontrolled. So we expect it to go up, but in normal healthy people, it goes up and then it comes back down. And that's what we're trying to achieve with all of this therapy. So that's called intensive insulin therapy. Whether you're using a, a pen, an insulin pen or a syringe or with an insulin pump, the idea is you're, you're getting insulin all day long, uh, trying to replicate what the, the, the careful function that your pancreas is naturally doing but on a manual basis or on an automated basis. Now, the trick with insulin pumps, all that sounds great, right? And the next thing I ran into as I started insulin pump therapy was I realized um, that it's automatic, right? So even if my glucose levels are already too low and I don't need any more insulin, in fact, even if getting more insulin will kill me over the next six hours, the insulin pump doesn't have that knowledge. The only knowledge that the insulin pump has is that I'm supposed to give this amount of insulin automatically all day long, every day. And so that's what the insulin pump tries to go do, even if getting more insulin will kill you. Which is very different from how your body works. That's right. Your body is, it has a, a tight feedback loop where all the organs are communicating um, through hormones and, and the, the signals that they're sending to each other through these hormones. 
And insulin, it turns out, is one of those signals, one of those hormones, along with, along with many others. Um, and so that's, that's the thing that the, the insulin pump does, is it controls the insulin that's going in your body, and that's the signal to the cells to, to do something with the glucose that's, that's floating around in the blood supply. So insulin will take insulin tells the cells to take the glucose out of the blood supply, bring it into the cell, and either store it away or use it. Um, but there needs to be a certain amount in the blood supply at at all times, and that's what we're trying. That's what we're trying to control. So the insulin pump. That's the next thing I, I ran into. Is the insulin pump can, in theory, can perform this biomimicry function where it's mimicking the function of your pancreas but it still requires you as the user, as the operator of this machine to tell it how much insulin to give and when. Um, and that's really when the next piece of technology came out. Um, and that was called the CGM, Continuous Glucose Monitor. So I used, uh, I used a, I was excited about what they had told me in the, in the doctor's office was that in sometime in the next five years, We've already got patients out in California that are testing using this technology. We're going to combine this new technology of continuous glucose monitoring along with the insulin pump. And the, the glucose monitor, the continuous glucose monitor, will, tell the, will inform all of the decisions of the insulin pump. So that, that with, by, when, when, when we talk about open loop therapy, we're, we're saying that there is no feedback loop between the glucose information and the insulin dosing information. So we're going to close the loop so that now there's a feedback loop between the continuous glucose monitor and the insulin pump. So the insulin pump can know uh, that you're, you're going too low with your glucose information, and it can stop giving you additional insulin which is great. If, if, if the goal is to not die and getting more insulin is going to kill you, the insulin pump should not give you more insulin, yeah. right? That's, that's an easy one. Uh, now, the trickier one is when you're too high and you do need more insulin, do you really trust all of this technology to give you additional insulin, especially if the, if the treatment itself, giving you additional insulin, could be the cause of additional harms for you? Uh, you could go into a seizure. You could suffer. Uh, you could suffer ill effects. Um, so that's that's the harder one. So at the time they said, "Oh yeah, this will be around in five years." So fast forward two years, and I get access to the CGM made by the same company um, for the first time. And I tried it out, and it was extremely uncomfortable. I started getting rashes on my skin from wearing all of the extra devices. They're all invasive devices, meaning there's a, in the case of the CGM, there's a, a sensor filament that goes under your skin. It's about nine millimeters long. There's, um, there's a bandage on top of that that keeps the, the, um, a small computer, essentially, that's attached to that filament, to attach to that sensor. That, that, that information has to get off of the sensor and, it, and communicated to the insulin pump somehow. So there's a device that sits on top of that, typically called a transmitter, and there's, there's bandaging and adhesive around all of that to keep it stuck onto the body. Same thing with the insulin pump. There's, it's, also, uh, it's also invasive. There's a, uh, what's called a cannula, which is a, a little tube that gets slipped under the skin, 
and you wear that for around three days. In the case of the CGM, you can wear that for seven days. The current model, we'll get into this a little bit later, but the current models are, are 10 days. Um, but all of that extra technology means you're wearing all of this stuff on your body. And my first experience of CGM was just not good. I was actually losing sleep. The devices would start alarming and, and bothering me during the middle of the night. At one point during the night, I got so itchy from the adhesive that I, I started scratching and I realized I had just scratched off of, off the device, off of my body. Yeah. And, uh, at that point I decided, you know, it's, this is, it's supposed to make my life better, but yet I feel more stressed out than ever. I, I it's still, it's still my fault as the, as the operator. If something goes wrong, it's still all my fault. Uh, and I'm taking all of the responsibility for it. And it doesn't seem like the fidelity of the care is where it needs to be. Right. And what I mean by fidelity is that there's this trust that there's this bargain that we make in our relationships with people, with technology, um, a, a trust that, that says that generally the more effort that I expend, the more energy that I expend trying to accomplish something, we should see that additional expenditure in the results. Right. Does that make sense to you that, that if I, if I work on a relationship or if I work on my career, the more work that I put into my career, the better the results should, should actually be. And here I was as a patient using this healthcare technology, spending more money, spending more, because the technology itself costs money with all the supplies and everything, spending more money, more energy, more time than ever trying to manage diabetes and I was ex actually experiencing much worse life results, life quality, in terms of being able to sleep all night, in terms of being able to work all day. Uh, like when you go to work, they expect you to work for your full work hours. And here I was suffering from more lows because I was believing that the CGM was telling me that I was high, not understanding the full implications of the fact that it takes insulin six hours to really do its job. And I would, I would go into this high state and realize the CGM was now telling me you're high. You're, you're at, you're at two seventy, And I would say, you know what? I'm really uncomfortable being at two seventy. I don't want to be two seventy. I'm going to try using uh, what we call the bolus wizard or the bolus calculator, which is where you put all the information into the pump and the pump will recommend a, a dose to you. And the recommended dose would say zero. And I would say, oh, yeah, zero, huh? Well, I'm going to put in more insulin even though you say zero. And then two hours, three hours later, I would, I would be extremely low, having to stop working, having to stop sleeping to get carbs to, in order to recover from a dangerous glucose situation. So, uh, so I stopped using CGM uh, even though I was enamored by the – by the promise of what it could do. And the deal that I made with myself at that time was, you know, I'm never going to use CGM again until I have the ability to get all of the data. One of the things I realized when I was, when I had was first trying the CGM system was that I, I had, even though the data ostensibly belonged to me and the data was being produced by these devices 
the, those devices, the device that I held in my hand was the only way to get access to the data. So if I wanted to look at the data, I had to just catch it every five minutes by getting the, getting the device out and looking at it. And again, that's, that just didn't seem like a very high fidelity, uh, high resolution way of managing healthcare. Uh, I had expected to be able to use any of my consumer devices uh, to look at dashboards of, of, of all of the information that was available, all of the medicine that's in my body, all of the predictions that are coming out of the fact that I have a certain amount of insulin in my body, all of, I expected to see graphs and charts that would inform me that, you know, even though you're high right now, you already have enough medicine in your body. So don't do anything. It's already taken care of. Uh, but there was no dashboard. The only, the only thing I had was the device itself. And if I asked it for help and plugged all the information in, it would just give me a table of, of numbers uh, about what had already happened. And again, that seemed just very low fidelity to me. Um, so I, I took off the CGM and I swear I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, the, the data belongs to me, but I don't have any access to it except the only way that the vendor has, has provided, which is through the vendor provided software or, uh, or through the device itself. Um, and then over the next few years from 2006 to 2012, uh, Windows went through major upgrades. Mac, Mac OS X went through major upgrades. Uh, the entire world of technology, we went into the cloud, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and cloud technology, cloud dashboards became coming online, and you could do all kinds of real-time uh, uh, real informatics BI, on, yeah. on the web. And you could share your view of a complicated information problem with with the, with the expert that you needed to, that you chose on the web in real time, all at the same time, right? And that's what technology made available over that, over that time period coming into, the last, coming into the last five years. And it's become so pervasive that now we expect all of that on our mobile phones as well. Uh, but, at, but during that time, during that time, I discovered it was actually impossible to buy a new computer that would work with the vendor-provided software uh, because Microsoft Windows stopped making updates for older versions of Windows. They deprecated old versions of things, and those were the only versions that the, this original vendor provided any software for. And so it was actually impossible to use any of the therapeutic software provided by the vendor on current hardware, on current computing technology. It was just not possible. And so I started really, uh, I started focusing my personal engineering efforts in my spare time on trying to understand the ins and outs of the insulin pump itself. I really concentrated on, here's how, how does the insulin pump work? How does the insulin pump communicate to the vendor what's going on. And so I started doing a lot of reverse engineering work to gain control of the information coming off of the insulin pump, gain control of the insulin pump itself using software that I wrote by myself.
And in the course of doing that, that took about five to six years of, of pretty, pretty steadfast effort. Over the course of doing that, several other things happened at, concurrently with other groups of people. And I got introduced to these other groups of people. Uh, in, in, and the things that happened really unlocked a, a lot of special things to happen, certainly unlocked um, what you and Ali talked about. And the introduction, uh, one of the main things that happened was a company called Dexcom, the company I work for now, came out with uh, their system called G4. Uh, I believe that was in t- 20, uh, 2013 or 2014. And that really changed everything. A friend of mine, um, at that point, I had started working for an organization called Tidepool. Uh, they're a nonprofit technology company concentrated on creating excellent technical solutions for, for, for managing type 1 diabetes. So they've got a cloud-based dashboard where you can go in and share with your personal care team, your friends and your family and your doctors, all of the information about your type 1 diabetes. And I was one of the first employees uh, to work there. And one of my coworkers, Brandon Arbeiter, got, introduced me to this G4 product. And G4 is a CGM, continuous glucose monitor. And it was the first continuous glucose monitor that provided accurate information on a, on a regular basis and was fairly comfortable to wear. So I, w- so I didn't have the same reactions as I had earlier. Now, the problem is Dexcom is competitors with the, the manufacturer of the insulin pump that also makes CGM. And so there was no integration. There was no interoperability between the really good CGM and what I considered to be a really good insulin pump. There was no integration at all. And so the next things that that the community as a whole the diabetes online community the, the all the other innovators uh, and experimenters that that we now know as the do it yourself community there there were several things that came out of all of us kind of meeting up and and gaining connections to one to one another during 2014 and 2015 and 2016 uh, the first was Night Scout, which allowed a real-time web-based dashboard that you could run on your own, do it yourself. You could set it up on any cloud provider like Microsoft Azure. In fact, we made it we made it a one-button one-button click. You could go to you could go to our GitHub page, click the fork button, and then click deploy on Azure. And it would just deploy, it would start running on Microsoft Azure. And that allowed, that, that allowed copying the, the CGM data from the G4 receiver. The original version was you'd had to, we used a smartphone as a, basically a fancy modem. You'd go buy an Android phone explicitly for this purpose. You'd plug it into the USB port of the G4 receiver. And it would copy all of the information off of the G4 receiver onto the smartphone and then into the cloud. And that's how that was the original data pathway for getting, uh, for liberating, as we say, the CGM data uh, for do-it-yourself use. And that made sure that now everyone that needs to, whether it's grandma or the school teacher or the parent at the office that everyone had, or the babysitter, everyone could view the same version of the problem, the same information of the problem, 
which reduced the barrier to, to problem solving, right? What do we do now? Do we need to give another juice? Do we need to give more insulin? Do we need to delay the gym class? Do we need to delay something? Should we, are we allowed to do the school test right now? Or should we wait until um, you're literally your head is in the right space to do so, this? So data, tra- it seems like just listening to this, I mean, amazing story, data transparency was was a massive issue. It seemed like with the interoperability of all these different products and solutions. But the, the challenge was at its core and there were solutions to all these different challenges, but there were just walls up between all these different solutions that you had to mitigate and, and dig through. That's right. So at this time, everything was, everything was very siloed. You have Dexcom over here. They run all of their proprietary um, vendor-provided software. They provide all their excellent reports. But when you look at the Dexcom report, it doesn't have any insulin data in it. So then you'd have to say, well, how much insulin? And by the way, the, 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 the standard of care is that you go to your uh, specialist called an endocrinologist about once a quarter or maybe every six months. And so they would ask you, what happened three weeks ago when you went low here? And you'd say, well, I, I don't know. It happened three weeks ago. <laughs> I barely remember what I had yesterday, right? Um, uh, but now, now, it's all, now with Night Scout, that opened up this, um, it opened up this ecosystem um, to have interoperable data that could flow, the data could flow where it needed to flow. Um, whether it's to the school teacher or to the coach or to, to grandma or to the off- the parent at the office. Um, and so once I got a hold of Night Scout, I realized, well, great, that, this is half the problem right here is just getting a hold of the glucose data. Now, I've been working on the insulin pump, and so I have access to the insulin pump data so that's that's like three quarters of the problem now is now we've got all the information from the insulin pump and all the information from the glucose monitor. Wouldn't it be cool if the ecosystem as a whole had ways to inform the decisions automatically and to close the loop between those two systems, regardless of who makes those systems? Because that's ultimately what patients really want. That, that's high-fidelity therapy is. I don't care where the information is coming from so long, as that, so long as it's trustable, trustworthy, accurate information. And so if I've got accurate information coming from vendor A with glucose data and accurate information coming from vendor B with insulin data, as the owner and operator of that data, I should be able to use technology to uh, make the best out of all of that information. And so that's the, that was the next piece that I worked on, was something called OpenAPS. And OpenAPS is a platform, a framework, for um, allowing people to work on the algorithms that ultimately control both of those pieces of information. So the idea is we, we would have a platform where it would be receiving every five minutes the glucose information would come in, all of the insulin pump information would come in, and that ideally, every five minutes, the software could provide a suggestion. And given that we trust that it's a good suggestion, that suggestion should be able to automatically control 
what the insulin pump is doing. And so OpenAPS does exactly that. It, it provides a platform where uh, developers of algorithms can spend 80% of their time and energy working on the algorithm rather than having to worry about the specifics of vendor A versus vendor B and how do you get the information off of the CGM device? How do you get the information off the insulin pump device? How do you get the information into the cloud? How do you get information from the cloud? I, I wanted the algorithm developer to be free from all of those concerns. And so that was the, that was, those were the design constraints really for, uh, for writing OpenAPS. So now if you've been keeping track, we have, we have Night Scout, uh, which is providing two things, a, a, dash, a real-time dashboard uh, on the web. We have the, the Dexcom CGM, and we have the Medtronic insulin pump. And OpenAPS was really the first piece of software that allowed all of those things to work together. So what OpenAPS did is it gathered all the information from the CGM, all of the information from the insulin pump, and then it uploads all of that information into your Night Scout. So now every, anyone looking at Night Scout has not just half the information, but all of the information about what, how much medicine is inside your body. What is the response in the glucose curves? How is your body reacting over time to those glucose curves? Why is the algorithm making the suggestion that it's making? And then finally, what decisions should we make now? And um, so that was that was that was OpenAPS, and then some a gentleman named Nate Ratcliffe used OpenAPS to develop uh, a, another algorithm called, uh, uh, which went into a program called Loop. And so Loop is a, is a program that works on your iPhone. And now everything is on a dashboard on your iPhone. Just tide pool, tide pool loop? That's right. So, so we're, yeah, we're, we're getting there. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, so there's DIY loop. So what I'm referring to is DIY loop. So, um, so Scott Librand and Dana Lewis, they helped write the uh, what we call the original reference algorithm, what we call OREF0, original reference algorithm version zero uh, for the DIY community. Uh, since then, they've moved on to OREF1 and a whole, a whole host of features that help eliminate, uh, that help lower the burden of managing diabetes. Uh, because the algorithm can recover. If I forget to, for example, if I forget to announce a meal uh, and bolus for carbs that are coming on board into my body, that one of they have features in their algorithm that can help compensate for the fact that I that I forgot. So again, lowering the burden, lowering the amount of responsibility that's placed on me simply because I'm operating the technology. Uh, so again, that's that's something that's a concept that I call. High, high fidelity therapy because it's making the more energy that I put in, the better the results are and not the other way around. Got like a one to many impact. Right. Yield. Right. So they wrote, they helped write OREF zero, which was the first version. Nate came along and saw, saw open APS and had a slightly different idea. All of open APS required a Linux computer with some specialty, with some specialty hardware from Texas instruments. 
and or or the original Carolink um, Carolink USB stick from Medtronic, and um, that required carrying around a large ba- a fairly large battery, a, a Linux com- Linux computer, which these days are, are fairly small. The Raspberry Pi is fairly small, but still, it's a lot of stuff to kind of carry around and make sure that it's working. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Nate had a different vision. He he implemented the algorithm, tested and validated it in OpenAPS. And then once he was satisfied with the performance of the algorithm, he moved it all into uh, Swift so that it could run on, on the iPhone. And so these days, uh, so that created a DIY loop uh, with what's called a Riley link, which is a, a bridge that allows the phone to talk to your pump because the pump has a proprietary communication protocol. It's not, it's not BLE, but it turns that proprietary protocol into standard BLE so that your iPhone can now talk to it. Since then, Dexcom has come out with CGM models that are also BLE. And so all of a sudden, we had this ecosystem again in which, in which now the iPhone can address both the insulin pump and the CGM directly. And so he worked on a framework for iOS called Loop, uh, and this is DIY loop that we're talking about, do-it-yourself loop, where you could go build the standard reference version of loop. And loop becomes a f- an app that simply runs on your phone doing everything I just talked about, automating everything. So uh, one of the tricky things is if you eat at, at, the, at, at night, at, you know, six, 6 or 7 or 8 p.m. or whatever, uh, you can bolus for that meal, but often what will happen is that, that initial bolus that you took of, of insulin for that meal is actually insufficient to cover you all night. You actually need multiple insulin in- injections in order to really finally balance out what you, in order to mimic what your body naturally does overnight. It's the mixture of the basal and the, and the bolus. Exactly right. Exactly right. Of course, if you're sleeping at 2 a.m., how can you do that? Yeah. That becomes an impossible task, an inhumane task, right? And so Loop and OpenAPS both, they allow this scenario where you can actually go to sleep and the system will, the technology will take over this problem for you. Every five minutes, it makes a decision about we're going to make a 30-minute decision to give you more insulin or less insulin, but we'll revisit that decision in five minutes. So imagine trying to do that. Now, last night I had, I had the system must've interacted with my glucose, uh, probably two, a hundred times just last night, Uh, every five minutes, it's making new decisions, uh, to increase or decrease based on what's happening. And without without having done that, I would have woken up uh, not able to not able to go to work or not able to go to school or being uh, you know, out of out of sorts. Mm-hmm. And uh, Loop and OpenAPS have made a huge impact on 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 my life, on many people's lives in terms of being able to alleviate some of that some of that burden. So that's the neat thing about OpenAPS and Loop. Now, the the new thing that you touched on is that the organization Tidepool took a, took a look at Loop and decided, you know, it, 
one of the constraints that we ran up against, the DIY community ran up against, is that we can tell that this technology is very useful, but how do you distribute it to more people, right? Being DIY means you have to understand something about servers to set up Night Scout. You have to understand something about Linux to go be able to go buy be a software engineer a computer essentially. And we put up, you know, we well, you don't have to be a software engineer. We we spent the community as a whole spends a lot of personal investment in terms of creating documents that allow just about anyone to basically just follow these instructions. Mm-hmm. Right? And you don't have to be an expert, but you do need to be brave enough to go buy equipment, to start dabbling in things that you're not familiar with, and to follow these instructions. And if you run into trouble, there's these online social media, there's forums where you can go and get help. But that's really, uh, that's a limiting factor on how many people can actually benefit from this technology in the way that it was meant to be benefited from, right? It, it, this was the whole promise of diabetes therapy is that you should not have to change your lifestyle to this ascetic, um, inhumane um, uh, lifestyle in order to get, get on with your life. You should, the technology should be serving you rather than you having to change your life to comply with the technology. It, it seems like the, democ- the democratization of everything that you've been talking, I mean, just just following along with you through the story, it's, I mean, you have to be college educated, like you have to be able to understand documentation and somewhat techn. I mean, I'm thinking about the folks that I know that have uh, diabetes type one and, and they just can't do that, <laughs> you know? So, right. It, this is very pertinent, this, this, this piece. Right. And so even, so with loop, this is the, this is one of the more easy to use options because it's right. It's all running on your iPhone and lots of people have iPhones, but it's not on the app store. Right. And, and the reason there's a good reason it's not on the app store, because if it's on the app store, when you go to Apple, Apple store, even if it costs zero dollars, you press install and there's an implicit contract about the fact that this app is, is going to be provisioned, configured, and deployed on your machine, on your computer, the iPhone, and that everyone involved in the production, the developers, to, the, to Apple as a company, that everyone involved is implicitly creating this commercial, the commercial contract, which is regulated by the FDA. And it's not FDA approved. It is not. It has not gone through all the testing and validation that, FDA approved devices are required to receive. And so Tidepool has stepped up in the last year and said, you know, this is a really important piece of technology. We're going to take DIY loop and send it through the FDA so that it can be put on the app store because this is something that everyone should have access to. So that's, so that's the short (laughs) version of um, the story of going from, um, shots to, um, to, to, to pumps and realizing that a pump means open loop and then creating a higher fidelity ca- version of therapy using closed loop technology. And thank you for sharing that, Ben. Um, when we originally spoke, just getting into it, I realized how much I didn't know but there were so many lessons to be learned with this journey. I mean, an incredible amount of lessons about how people are trying to solve problems. And uh, it'd be great to, to, to find out a little bit more about how you look at solving problems with technology. But 
just earlier today, I was just listening to, I don't know if you're familiar with Peter Atia. Uh, he's an MD, has an podcast called The Drive. And uh, he's a, like, has a practice and, and patience. And he's kind of a thought leader about wellness and health and living, living a long life and, and all these different clarity of thought and all these different ideas. And he actually interviewed Kevin Slayer, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago. I think they're good friends. And, and Kevin came on and talked about the importance of the CGM and how this, this new uh, G6 pump, they're just really personalizing it and making it a lot better for consumers to, to use. Not only folks that have diabetes type 1, but folks that just want to have better health and mon- monitor their glucose for the health and wellness throughout their livelihood. And it looks like Dexcom just recently formed a new partnership with Tidepool as well as, as Medtronic. So it seems like there's a lot of really great things that are emerging here, a lot of which sounds like this community of all these different solutions and nonprofits and people and collaborations, part of that, all of them using this interoperable open source technology, like you mentioned, GitHub, putting code and essentially a social a social site where people have profiles and they're communicating with each other and they're interchanging ideas and, and leaving some of their pay it forward work for others to go and fork and grab. I hear you talking about this technology piece where this technology is just becoming its own community, but then there's this people element. And I talked to Ali about how all of this sounds just so open, how the transparency and the visibility, which were inherently the, the problems with all of these different solutions from the get-go from the time that you were starting to look at the CGMs. Now that you've worked on this and the things are moving forward, it seems like the entire industry is being completely disruptive. And I think it's going to even change for the better with the dominance of cloud. As someone who has done this before, when you look at other hard-to-solve problems, uh, whether it be other diseases or illnesses or any kind of wicked problem, what's your lens for approaching some of these problems. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a really that's a really interesting way of framing that question. I um, I uh, early I what I will say is this: that early early on um, in my in my story uh, in navigating uh, diabetes and technology, uh, a lot of uh, I would run into people. And they would say, you know, why don't you just make an app that that does this that does this thing, right? And with really hard problems, there you're not really sure um, if you could wave your magic wand and make a killer app. There's a lot of times when you're not actually a hundred percent sure what that killer app looks like. What what is that killer app even really doing? And um, uh, what always what always stuck out in my mind was that the need is the need is for for high fidelity therapy for trustworthiness, um, and I'm not admittedly I'm actually not much of a of a people person. I, I I get I get I get confused by personality quirks, and I've I've got my own personality quirks. Um, but one thing that really stood out very clearly in my mind was that it can't be about the one killer app because my one of my major complaints was that uh, was that the information itself is considered proprietary and that if it's only about the one application then 
what's that what that's in, implicitly saying is that so long as that the vendor the one vendor of this one device makes an application that should be good enough um, which is not how we got the World Wide Web, which is not how we got the internet. Um, the way that we got the internet and the way that we got the World Wide Web was by making the technology uh, open and debuggable and inclusive. And I remember when at the rise of the World Wide Web, the way that you would go learn about it was to go click on view source and, and start inspecting what is going on behind the scenes there. And that speaks to this idea of the ecosystem, right? And so that was the thing that always stuck out for me was I didn't just want an app. I wanted the ecosystem. And so all of the, all of the things that I worked on, um, in some cases, delayed uh, progress on a particular app at the expense of making the ecosystem more inclusive, uh, a, a, a bigger tent for more people to be included in. I, uh, I had another woman, uh, Wendy Bauer. She's a worldwide uh, strategy lead at Microsoft for uh, resources and manufacturing industry. And she wrote this amazing article, just a quick article uh, on the implications of AI on manufacturing. And she focused specifically, she's very, very focused and, and well-read on inclusiveness and diversity and, and how to develop products that speak to many. And when I hear you talking about the killer app, and after having that discussion with her and you say, hey, killer app versus this ecosystem, well, killer app, and then the three takeaways from her article was AI has to ensure that it's, it's highly accessible. It's got to have benefits that are very fair, like this, this, this idea of fairness and then ha obviously it has to be inclusive. Nothing is more inclusive or diverse, like you said, like the World Wide Web. But when you have this killer app, like where does it exist? Does it exist in the iOS? Does it, does it exist on the Droid platform? Like, do you even have access to a mobile phone? Do you have to use a desktop? Like, there's all these different layers. I think, Ben, that we just, it's hard for us to understand unless you are coming from a different place, which you are where you're trying to make this incredible impact across many, many people that are suffering, or at the time were suffering and, and still are. Yeah, a lot of it has to do with the idea of, of innovation. How does innovation, what is the process of innovation? How does it take place? You know, I, uh, I, I, I've done a lot of reading on, uh, on the development of technology. So like the paperclip or the zipper, right? We don't think of those as technology these days, but there was a point in the past when, where those devices were considered high tech. Uh, and it took, you know, for the zipper, for example, took over a hundred years before it fell into common use, whereas being put on, on clothes. And the reason is because the, the first zippers that came out, they were dangerous. <laughs> they had sharp teeth on them and they didn't always work properly. Uh, same thing with paper clips. It was really difficult to get a manufacturing process that could consistently loop that thing around and still have some structural integrity. Uh, the uh, zipper is a beautiful, beautiful device. I mean, I mean, you you know, everyone that buys a nice bag or a nice pair of jeans or or whatever, you run that zipper down and it's like, oh, 
and it's perfect almost every time now. You, you, you don't, you, uh, you know, 30 years ago, you'd occasionally run your code up and down and it'd, it'd, get, it'd get mismatched. And that, that almost never happens anymore. Um, but, but that's because of the, of the demand for the technology. Is because of the, it's because of a bunch of things. And it's not because the zipper was the killer app. It was because it was because of a lot of things that went into the development of, of that technology, and again, when you look at at the web and and the thing the thing that could be the killer app today is 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 not necessarily the killer app of tomorrow, um, and just because we have meters, uh, we have these glucose meters, you know, five years ago, they're actually not too different from the glucose meters of today. Um, but there's no reason that just because that's the high, that, that was the best technology that was available. There's no reason for the fact that it's the best technology today to forestall or prevent another better technology from impacting people's lives. And so that's really where I was thinking about the, the, the ecosystem as a whole and the process for how do we get to a better technology, even if we don't fully understand the complete solution space, because that's the thing that's that's the thing that I always find really interesting is navigating uh, navigating a, a solution space that is not clear. Uh, I, I I just love going and branching out and thinking about all the all the different connections between different pieces of technology, and um, that that's something that, that that's been. It's sometimes ineffable. It's it's difficult to describe that there's these there's going to be these connections between different pieces of technology that you do not see today, and when you have an ecosystem that's accessible, an ecosystem that democratizes the the effort, and this these humane concepts like the like this concept of high fidelity that the more effort that you put into the system, the results should be better for you. Um, if that becomes a requirement of every piece of technology that you're working on, then the results are fundamentally going to be more humane for people. So, so it, so your principles that, and I'm, that's kind of where I'm getting to. I was just I was researching some some software engineering principles, and I I really wanted to understand the tenants uh, because this this has been a an evolution for you. But it sounds like ecosystem inherently important. Um, you mentioned long-term thinking, not trying to think again, this, this killer app idea, not trying to think about the app today, but just this capability, how, how is this capability going to be able to be used in, in, the, in the near term, long term, high fidelity innovation, which I really love that you talk about that, that one to many impact, um, as little work and effort as possible for the greatest amount of impact. And then this ability to navigate a space that is foreign and being okay to, to have lots and lots of unknowns. I think that's really hard for businesses, for actually for, for people, people who are, are listening to this and who are wanting to build better capabilities, better technology. If you could leave them with one thing, what would it be? Oh gosh. I, I, um, I, I, I'm, I, I always talk about this high fidelity concept as often as I can uh, uh, because I think people lose sight of the, of the effort that's required to, 
to get some good out of a technology. Um, uh, for example, early closed loop systems came on the market. Uh, Medtronic introduced a, a closed loop system onto the market. And people, the investor community is kind of flummoxed by this. Why, why would there be this DIY community where you have to build it yourself? You, you can't pay for support. You know, all these downsides, you know, with the quality is not certain. Why would people even opt for that when you could just go pay Medtronic for this device and get support for it, et cetera, et cetera? And it's been through FDA testing, right? So we know, we know what it does. And it's automatic, right? It's just solving all your problems automatically. And it turns out some of those assumptions just don't wind up being true, that in order to get the benefit that that automa automated technology is giving you, you have to follow the rules that allow that technology to give you that benefit. So another, I, sometimes I like to pick on the, this is not necessarily fair, but I like to pick on the, the, the diabetic alert dogs sometimes. So you can train, there's, there's these dogs that have this super sniffers and you can train them to, um, to alert you when your glucose is going up. This is, this is real? Down. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. This, is, this is a real thing. Um, and they're expensive to get. Um, but one of the, one of the things I, I kind of realized is, is that when, when you're doing that, and it, it's, a, it's a great help for, for a lot of people. I, I don't want <laughs> to disparage it too much. But one of the things I realized is that by the time you're getting that benefit from the dog, um, in order to get that benefit, you've had to live with the dog and train the dog to follow the rules that you want, right? Which means you're living by the same rules as the dog. So every time the dog alerts, you have to do reinforcement training every single time the dog alerts, right? Which means you're, you're, you're pricking again, you're treating the dog to its treat, you're saying, good boy, dog, you know, here's your reward or here's your punishment in order to do that reinforcement learning all the time. So by the time you're getting the benefit, you've now adapted your lifestyle to be the same as, as the dogs, essentially. And that was, it turns out that was the similar story with the Medtronic devices. Here's this enormously complicated technological advancement, right? And what do you have to do to get the benefit that is promising? Well, the, the system was programmed with certain rules, certain operating uh, environment conditions, right? In that it wants to have four calibrations per day. So that means you, you have to prick your finger and put the blood information into the device manually four times per day. And by the way, if you don't do it, it's going to alert an alarm. It's going to interrupt you over the course of the day to make sure that you do it. So now if you're an hourly worker, right, and this thing says, uh, I'm, I'm providing you with all this automated dosing support, but I'm not going to do it over the next hour because you have failed to give me another glucose finger stick. So what is the impact on that kind of rule for the hourly worker? That means that the hourly worker can't get paid for the hour, right? So there's a loss of, there's literally a loss of income. There's an interruption from your flow, right? And so the thing that, you know, in thinking about diabetes treatment, what, you know, what I want is time on task time well spent. And what does that mean for humans? It typically means that when it's your turn to go work, when it's your turn to go play, when it's your turn to go sleep, that you're able to do those things 
the way that you were supposed to be doing those things. As few interruptions as possible and certainly not having to change your lifestyle in order to get those things done. Um, so I, that's, that's kind of how I would put it. That's, the, that's, that's what I consider to be high fidelity. Um, high fidelity technology is, is something that the more, the more effort that you put into it, you get more results back. That's one side of it. Right, but the flip side is that it doesn't require that it, that, it, that it's able to adapt to the lifestyles of the people that are using it, rather than asking people to change the way that they live yeah. in yeah. order to get that benefit. Yeah. And I think AI has a, has a long way to go there in terms of uh, you know how how do you come to trust these devices? Uh, yeah. I'm doing this big research project now on on trustworthiness and healthcare automation, and there's got to be good reasons why. If a closed loop system is going to shut off your insulin when you're when you're 170 or 180, and you think that that's high, and you should be getting more insulin, there needs to be a valid explanation as to why that's happening. Um, that's going to be some. That's going to be some very interesting work, I think. And 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 to your last, you know, closing thought on on what you wanted to leave the 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 folks building software that are listening to this. It seems like not only as as this new ecosystem of cloud and this new ecosystem of consumption economics and and micro transactors being able to turn machines on from anywhere, they can, instead of having hardware, now you have VMs and yet now you have this platform as a service capability. I mean, right now there's there's virtual machines and and cloud environments that are turning on and scaling up and scaling out. And data is being consumed and data is being put into different dashboards. And now models are now pulling all this data and giving us insights. And now new models are adjusting and using those insights to, with reinforcement learning to do new things. So it seems like now we're in this stage where not only is there high fidelity, high impact that you can get if you do things right the way that you're saying, but now you have this ability to do it with technology where you could at scale give it to so many new people. Uh, which I think is so interesting. Yeah, and and I think the important thing is to not limit, not artificially limit the benefit that can come in the in the future. You you don't know. Uh, it's very difficult to know who is going to come up with the next um, the next great idea to enhance your own product. And um, there's been there's a lot of temptation, I think, in uh, in industry to say, well, we, we shouldn't leave any money on the table for someone else to collect, right? And so the, there's an unfortunate harm that comes to society as a whole when we, when we make decisions in such a way that it limits who has the ability to, to do that innovative work. Um, and I think that's one of the lessons that we've learned from this DIY community is that the, the, given the opportunity and the chance the, pa the patients themselves can help industry move uh, move towards greater innovation um, for the benefit of everyone involved. Um, that, I think that's been the biggest lesson for, for me in, the, in this DIY diabetes space. Um, but I think Microsoft as a whole has also provided some insight there. You know, Microsoft used to be a very proprietary, closed um, company 
And these days, you can go on GitHub, and there's so many Microsoft projects that are sponsored, and not just sponsored in a trivial sense, but actually the work is getting done in public, in full view. And that that can be an uncomfortable position um, for, for people that are not used to working that way. But it, it does open up, uh, open up the floodgates for innovative ideas, for people to connect, and for, uh, for great good to come about. New ways of working. So I, I know we're, we're, we've gone over quite a bit. Just one last question. If, if there was any problem that you could choose to work on uh, with an unlimited amount of resources, what would that problem be? Oh, the problem. Uh, <laughs> it could be. I mean, it could be. You could say climate change if you wanted to, but it's something, or it could be as small as an incremental uh, change in any of the technologies we discussed today. Uh, something at Dexcom that could be anything. Uh, um, well, the, right now I've I've I, I find myself in a position where I've I've dedicated. Um, an inordinate amount of time and energy to type one diabetes. I, I feel that we are still not there yet. Um, one of the things that's been most impactful for me is not just inside the, the diabetes space and thinking about the ecosystem and, and innovations, but realizing that patients across the board have this power asymmetry when it comes to the people that are providing them care, whether it's from healthcare professionals or from vendors as a whole. And across healthcare, across the board in healthcare, I, I just find that the, the fidelity of the experience that we get is not, not where it should be. And I, so I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see there's an, I've seen a number of uh, players jump on board. I, I think recently uh, Amazon and Berkshire Hack, ha- yeah. yeah, Berkshire Hathaway. I, it sounds like they are kind of upset about that problem as well. So I'm, I'm, I think that would be, I think that would be it is, is because that affects longevity and health and wellness for just about everyone at some point in their life. Um, I, I think that I think that would be it. Thanks for sharing that, Ben. You know this this was a really great conversation. I I really appreciate you coming on and and sharing your worldview. And I think a lot of people will really enjoy your. I think you're a really great storyteller. Your facts are are aligned quite well. I don't know if you're looking at a, a long page of notes, but um, just really helped me understand your journey and the journey of others in the same situation and and just the broader perspective of how does how does tackle big difficult problems with with people and with technology and and just with this amazing set of ecosystems uh, in collaboration and visibility um what's the best way for folks to get a hold of you if they'd like to reach out and ask any questions uh i'm on i'm on twitter as be west is doing be west is doing um i'm also on github as be west and my email is bewest at gmail.com. Okay. Ben, thanks so much. Really appreciate yeah. it, man. Had yeah, a, great talking to you, Derek. Today. Thanks a yeah, lot. You too. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening today and having some fun with us on the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please follow me on LinkedIn or 
at DRUSS Network, D-R-U-S-S Network on Twitter, Instagram. And you can also reach out to me anytime via email at Derek at thedatabinge.com. The Data Binge podcast is a personal thought form where we share knowledge and ideas. Views and opinions expressed here do not reflect those of my employer, Microsoft. I really hope you enjoyed. Thanks a lot.